Well, you know the text. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And let's just read 18 through 20 tonight. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, thy utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, we began really this particular sermon last week dealing with the idea of prayer there in verse 18. And what Paul says there in verse 18, of course, does go towards all the saints. That is, there is to be this constant, uh, diligent praying one for another that we're to persevere. Notice that in verse 18. Uh, and with supplication for all saints. That is, it's not just a one-time affair. I've done my duty and now let me press on to something else. But this is something that is to be a continual reminder for us that we're to pray one for another. But the same would also be true for verses 19 and 20. That is, that we're to make all prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. We're to be watchful about that. We're to do so in perseverance, not only for all saints, but as Paul here in verse 19 and 20 reminds us, but for him as well. And so whatever applies to verse 18 would also then by necessity apply to verse 19 and 20. And so we saw this morning then the duty of saints to pray for their ministers. And so we looked at the fact that ministers certainly do need the prayers of God's people. And so the command there is given and we gave some of the reasons as to why. And the main reason is not just because it said so here in the text, but we need to realize that pastors are made of the same stuff uh, that you're made of. And so if you need prayer, then certainly the, pe- the pastors who... Um, oversee the flocks definitely need prayer as well. If they have the same kind of hearts that you do, and they do, then obviously then you need to pray for them. Pray for them because of their infirmities. Pray because we're dealing with spiritual truths and spiritual realities from God's Word. Pray also because Satan as well, as we mentioned this morning, is against us, just as he is against you. He is also against the Lord's pastors And then also we suffer the same temptations, the same coldness of heart and unconcern that you may have as well. Well, in that light, then, we want to now come to the second part of our message. This is point number two. What specifically, then, are you to pray for in regards to your pastors? And so we're looking at tonight, then, the subject of the saints' prayer for their minister. Well, in our text, it is that Paul would have boldness to speak. Notice that. And for me, that is, you pray for me with watchful, persevering prayer and supplication. Pray for me that utterance, that is, speaking, may be given unto me. And he explains what he means by that. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And again, the Apostle Paul, the last person you'd ever expect to hear someone asking that kind of prayer for them. We see Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. We certainly see a man who seems to be set on declaring the glorious gospel of the grace of God. And yet we see him humbly beseeching here and petitioning the church at uh, Ephesus to remember 
him as well in their prayers for boldness. Now, I want you to note here, he used boldness or boldly, actually, two times in these passages. One in verse 19 and also there in verse 20. So, he repeats this and obviously then for emphasis. He desires that he might have boldness to speak. And he means this double. That is, you really need to pray that I will have boldness to speak as I ought. He wants the saints, as it were, to hone in on this very fact. It's surely, I have other needs. And as we mentioned tonight, there are several reasons as to why you ought to pray. And those were true because of our infirmities, because we're dealing with spiritual truths and so forth. But you really, he wants them to hone in on this very fact here that I need, he says, the boldness to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, those other things are lawful for you to pray for me in regards to. You ought to because you know your own heart. Thus, I have a heart like that. But in particular, though, pray for me, for he says here, for boldness. Boldness to proclaim the gospel as I ought to speak. Notice that last phrase there in verse 20. As I ought to speak. So thus we can see then Paul must have had the temptation or he recognized his weakness that he did not speak as boldly as he ought. And so then he has this prayer then that he requests, that he asks of the brethren that they would pray for him that he might have this boldness to speak the gospel as he ought. Well, let's look here a moment at the word boldly as it's used twice here in verses 18 and, or excuse me, verse 19 and 20, as we said. Uh, the idea behind this word means to wax bold, obviously. That is to speak without the fear of man. In other words, when you are sitting or standing here, excuse me, looking at those faces, there is this. Uh, tendency at times to kind of hold back and not say the things which necessarily need to be said. And so there is this fear then that we will not say what we ought to say. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Now, I don't mean a fear that we would say something stupid and, and offensive that doesn't need to be said, but say the right things at the right time to the right folks. You know, there is a season for everything. And Paul here is, is asking that he would have that kind of boldness. He desired not to be under the bondage of man and the fear of men. Notice what he says back in Galatians 1. And here again, this is a book that's dealing with those who have departed from the, uh, the gospel. He's trying to win them back. And he gives this very severe warning about those who would come and who would preach another gospel to them. And he makes no bones about it. Again, we won't take the time, but you can start in verse 7 and read through verse 9 that he puts out this accursed upon anyone who would declare any other thing than that which he has declared unto them. If they don't come preaching the gospel that I preached, he says, let them be accursed. That's pretty bold. But notice why he says it. For do I now persuade men, in verse 10 he says, or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So there is this fear, brethren, that we have by nature, or some of us do by nature, or this tendency to fear God, fear man rather than God. In fact, I would say that's all of us. Not just pastors, but all of us. That's why we see the warnings that throughout all Scripture, fear the Lord for the beginning of, that's the beginning of wisdom and so forth. But here Paul is dealing with a very important matter 
of the continuance of the gospel of the grace of God. And he says, I'm not here. When it comes to this matter, I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to please man. I am here to preach the gospel boldly to you. And if I don't do that, then I am not really the servant of Christ. And that's even in the face of the Apostle Peter. Because you remember, in just a couple of chapters over, he's going to stand before Peter and warn him of the gospel, at least the way that he lived, was contrary to the gospel that he knew and preached himself. So the apostle then did not want that kind of uh, tendency within him. He wanted boldness to declare the gospel, which he did. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. He's, and again, he's, he's showing the church here how he came in amongst them there uh, at Thessalonica. And he gives a little bit of a historical background, uh, which goes to show you there's more than just the qualifications found in First Timothy to, for a man to be standing in the pulpit. There are some of these little things like this we need to pull and draw out. Uh, same way with the deacons. They're just not just those passages in First uh, Timothy that would restrict a man in the office. Or even, there are other things in the Word of God that would hint to being qualified for these things. Well, here for the minister, he notice how Paul says, he says in verse 4, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, notice, not as pleasing men, but God. And here, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. I didn't say it right. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now, this is a very important matter in the place of the minister. To fear man then will put the temptation really to water down the message of God, to take its blunt or the edge off of the off of the sword, so to speak, and not make it as sharp as wet. Well. Again, we're not speaking about being mean in the pulpit or saying things to just to get people riled up, just to get them riled up, that sort of thing. But we're talking about biblical preaching where the truths need to be delineated to such that it speaks to the conscience and minds of the brethren as well as sinners. And there is this tendency, brethren, in the, in the ministers of Christ not to speak as bold. You see, we like to be liked too, just as you do. We don't want you going home mad at me. I don't want to lay in bed at night thinking, oh, now what have I done? What have I said uh, to offend this person or that person? Got to make this right. Got to make that right. Now, again, we're not talking about being sloppy and sinful in our presentation of the gospel. But when we need to be blunt, brethren, and speak the truths to God whether or of God to men, whether in the pulpit or in their home, the case is the same. We need that boldness. And whether it need, the need be of salvation of sinners or the saints who need rebuking and correction, we need that boldness. Remember, Paul here is in bonds, he'll tell us. And there were sinners and saints that he had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And brethren, he needed encouragement. And he needed the power from God to speak the word of God boldly as he ought to have spoken. So that's why he says pray for him that he have that kind of boldness. And then there's also another meaning behind the word would also fit this context. And it means a confidence. 
Someone as bold is also someone who's confident. Now, I don't think he means here, or this would have anything to do with what we would call self-confidence. Look over in 2 Corinthians, and we see Paul certainly wasn't after that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4. Uh, well, let's start in verse 3. Uh, no, start, yeah, verse 4. And such trust we have through Christ Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but he goes on to say, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Paul here is not speaking of that kind of boldness where, well, I'm so cocksured of my abilities. I mean, I've been to seminary. I have all the degrees behind my name. I'm, I'm such a wonderful speaker. I've got great eloquence. I can write books on it, as a matter of fact. So I don't really, that's not the kind of boldness that Paul is speaking of here. At all. He's not speaking of self-confidence, but confidence in God. What is needed in the pulpit is not self-glorification and self-pride and all that baloney that's out there today. What we need is confidence in God and confidence in the means of what, what God has installed for us to use to encourage His people and to save sinners is adequate. I think we were talking about that afterwards this morning after services that people just don't believe that preaching is going to work. And so they'll use everything and anything but preaching to gather the, uh, the people of God in. Well, I have confidence that it's going to work. And it will draw just whom God will desire it to draw. And the rest we don't want, do we? We don't want folks who are going to not be what God would have us to be or them to be. Paul desires here they would have confidence or he'd have a boldness with the means of grace, that is, the preaching of the gospel as God has ordained. And this is the means God has ordained to save sinners, isn't it? As well as to exhort the brethren. That's the context, again, because you remember what he says. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to do what? To make known the mystery of the gospel. He's talking about here a proclamation then of the truth. The preaching of it. That I would have confidence in what it will do. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is to everyone that believeth. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us in a very long passage dealing not with human reasoning as he says, but with godly wisdom, which of course is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lengthy passage, but he says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. What's the power of God? The preaching of the cross. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? This is Paul speaking. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Brethren, that's the confidence that we need. That's the boldness that the preaching of the gospel will accomplish that very thing that God has intended that it would do. And this is what Paul declares that he would have boldness in. Notice again, verse 19, to preach or to make known the mystery of the gospel. For in that gospel, then, is the power of salvation to everyone that believeth. And notice here, it's the mystery of Jesus Christ set forth in the preaching of that gospel. And though it's a mystery only made known, of course, by the revelation of God in the heart, yet Paul was pressed to preach it so that men may hear. Brethren, that's what we need. That's what I need. So pray for me that I will have confidence in this means of grace that the preaching of the gospel is sufficient and that we won't give way as pastors to the new fads that are coming down the pike. Let's stick to the old paths. Let's stick to the landmarks of Scripture. Let us be assured, let us be bold in the gospel of Christ that it will do what it's set forth to do. I know that our preaching isn't going to save all. Brethren, it was never intended to do so. It is still a stumbling block to the self-righteous Jew and it is still foolishness to the wise. So I don't expect anything different. The Bible is still true and the truth of it as we see it is true. Thirdly, boldly also has the connotation of meaning plainly. Plainly. Paul here is praying that he would speak bold in such a way that he would be plainly understood. One of the things that was so notable about the Puritans of the days gone by was they were not into the highfalutin uh, preaching of the Anglican church where the sermons were splattered with Greek and Latin and all sorts of uh, uh, things like that to, in order to, in, uh, to catch the ear of the qualified man out there in the pew who would understand it while the rest of the sheep, the poor of the, sh- of the flock, wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. And one of the things that made the preachers of the Puritan age so popular was that they were preaching so that men and women of everyday class could understand. You read the preaching of Paul. There is no mistake about it. Jesus is the Christ. That's plain, isn't it? I'm come here to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He reasoned out of the Scriptures. You remember as he comes to the synagogues and reasons with them out of the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So there is this plainness that he had. So there needs to be this boldness in the sense that the Gospel is sent forth in a way that men in the pew, even young people in the pew, can understand. 
Paul told Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We don't need preaching that muddies it up so much that even adults can't even figure out the way to heaven, much less children. So we need that kind of plainness or boldness from the pulpit. We need to speak to men in such a way that they know that they are given the truth, whether they'll receive it or not. That's not the point. Again, we know by the Word of God that there are going to be those who are going to reject it. There will be those who hear the gospel who will be hardened by that very gospel that saves others. That's God's work. That's not ours. But we want to make it so that it's plainly understood. We see the Apostle Paul, even in some of his personal accounts. He was a very intelligent fellow. He sat at the feet of Gamil, which was a very highly high-class teacher there in, uh, in Jerusalem. And he admits that he sat under his feet. So Paul could razzle and dazzle the best of them. But he didn't do that. Again, when he came to Corinth, and there was a city who was trying to mimic Athens, who wanted to have all of the rhetorical and, and eloquence that was down there in Athens. And so that's all they would talk about is how to speak well and speak lofty themes. Paul wanted none of that. He didn't want the wisdom of the world, nor even in the presenting of the truth for that matter, in the wisdom of the world. That's, that's chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a nutshell of 1 Corinthians. He didn't want the world's methods even to get the truth out. How we need to be careful with that, brethren, and examine everything that we pick up as new when it comes to uh, uh, declaring the gospel in, a, in, a, in an age so that they can understand it. My fear is that they will understand it and they won't want to hear it anymore. That's not to say that we're trying to sneak the gospel behind them and come up behind them, as it were, and then shove the gospel in their face. No, I'm not talking about that at all. But believe me, if the self-righteous man truly hears the gospel, he won't like it. If the wise truly understand that it's not his wisdom that will get him to heaven, but the sanctification and wisdom of another, they won't like that either. They said of Paul that he was, to look upon him, he was weak. And his speech was contemptible. Notice in uh, 2 Corinthians. I think they mean there that he wasn't some blubbering idiot when he got up and spoke. But in the, the, the standard of the day, like the Athenians or the Corinthians, he was contemptible. Chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, here the, uh, he's telling what the, they're being said about him, about his letters. Well, look at verse 8. He says, Though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That's how they pictured Paul. Why did they picture him that way? Because he did not sound like someone who graduated from Athens University. He graduated from the school of Christ. 
being schooled and braised up in the Old Testament Scriptures and with the revelation now of the mystery of the Gospel upon him. Chapter 11 and verse 6, he says, Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. How about that? Even he, he himself concedes, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. Again, in Colossians chapter 4. Again, this doesn't mean every preacher has to get up and be a bumbling person like me. What he's saying there is that we want to be the plain from the pulpit. And yes, we ought to use right use of rhetoric and that sort of thing and, and the basics of speech and that, so that we can be understood plainly. Notice in Colossians again, 4, verse 3, "...with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for I am also in bonds." Notice, "...that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak." Notice the word there, "...to make it manifest, to make it plain, so that sinners can understand." Remember, sinners are dead in sins. Remember, sinners have their eyes, as it were, glazed over. Sinners are corrupt in their minds. Their minds are darkened. And so the truth then has to be presented in such a way that those kinds of minds can understand. And, of course, savingly understand they need to have that reveal taken away by, of course, God Himself. So no matter how plain we make it, it won't save anyone. We could make it as plain as 2 plus 2 equals 4. But nobody, apart from the, God, the grace of God, will ever come to understand, in a saving way, the grace that saves sinners. So we see here, Paul desires that you pray for us in boldness. So tonight, pray for me. And those three areas in particular. Boldness in the sense of waxing bold to speak without fear of man. To speak bold in the sense of having confidence in the gospel that we do preach. And then also in the sense of making it plain so that men, women, and children can understand the gospel and the word of truth and holiness. Well, let's make some observations and we will be done with this. First of all, we should note the great labor that the minister has in preaching. It's not that he just stands before you in preaching and preaches, but there is a lot that goes on behind what I do before I get up here. And it's not playing on the Internet looking for sermons. It's looking through the Scripture and studying and praying and effort, trying to put these things together and then thinking about you, how that they fit you in your particular circumstance, this flock in its particular circumstances. So much time then is spent in the Word of God. You'd be surprised how many times I have had to read through the Scripture. You probably wouldn't even believe it if I told you. Because I make this my daily goal to read Scripture. Why? Because that's what I'm to preach. Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. And preach with all long suffering and doctrine. A man can't do that unless he's in the Word. He cannot do that unless he's praying in regards to that word. He can't do it unless he has his mind, in a right sense, upon you. 
When you go, I was telling the brethren this past week, when you go to the office, so to speak, or your study, you have to have the needs of the people in view when you go to the text. Not so that you can tickle their ears, but so that you can cause them to see what they need to see, that there is a peace for me, there is something for my family, there's something for me wherever I go. These are the kinds of things that we have to continually keep in our mind and our heart. I think about the high priest each year when he went into the sanctuary. Remember, he had that breastplate on upon his chest. And there was the twelve tribes of Israel represented by those stones as he went in. And he went into the holiest of holies there, bearing the people, as it were, upon his breast. And, of course, that was typifying, picturing the Lord Jesus. But I think also we could say that of ourselves as the minister of Christ. Wherever we go, when we go to the throne of grace, there you are upon our hearts as we labor for you. You know, wherever or whatever the pastor, if he's a good pastor, whatever he does, he has on his mind the people of God. In fact, his heart is in reality wrapped up with his people. It's to see that they're nurtured. It's to see, it's to see that they're supplied for by the grace. It's like a father who, who goes to work. He just doesn't go to work in order to, because he loves his job perhaps so much, but he knows that he has a family to take care of. He knows he has little ones at home that need to have food and clothing on their back. He has a wife who has needs and, and she gets hungry too and she needs clothes on her back. She needs, so he goes to work, pushes on as it were to that place of business so that when he comes home he could have something as it were to bring the bacon home to his family. That's the way it is with a minister. He has, and I use this in a biblical sense, he has his children on his heart as he goes to his office or to his place of work, so to speak. And he doesn't do much without thinking about how it's going to affect you. And when he goes to the Scripture, he sees you in it and wonders how he's going to make this more refreshing each week as he brings forth these truths to your mind and to your heart. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, I think, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He doesn't mean they're dividing it up in different dispensations. That's how the fundamentalists teach that verse. But he speaks there of meaning dividing it out to the, to the right kind of folks. There's a crowd over here that needs this. There's a, there's a person over there that needs this truth. And that's what he does. It's great labor. It's a lot of work. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And by the way, they don't teach you that in school. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them. Now, I'm only going to show this because of this fact here. He says, which labor among you. They're laboring. They're the worker, common worker who goes out and works, labors. So there's work involved in all of this. Why you pay him on this account? He watches for your soul. He he does double duty, as it were. He, uh, according to first, I can't get can't get the text on the head. First First Timothy five. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine, the preaching of, the studying of it, and then bringing it out. 
So there's labor. And he's worthy of his reward. And thus he is a laborer who is worthy of your prayers then as well. Not just your financial maintenance, but also your spiritual exercises in your prayer closet for those who labor over you. And not just here. If you go somewhere else and you're trying to be faithful in that ministry, that would be my, my counsel would be the same. You labor hard in your prayer closet for the man or the men who are over you there in that place. Now, I'm not saying anybody leave. I'm happy you're here. But I'm just telling you, that's, I would say that across the board wherever we're at. Or if I was sitting under someone, I too, when there will be hopefully a day of that. We put two men under the, under the yoke of the eldership here. I too will be under them. Now, I know there'll be some working out of all of that. And my thinking and your thinking as well, because that's never happened. But there is to be a plurality of elders. They will be my elder and I should labor for them in the prayer closet just as I expect them to be laboring for me in the prayer closet. So, pray. Just as he's worthy of uh, double honor, he's worthy of double honor in your prayers. So, think of it that way. So, pray for him. Secondly, see that the preaching is a necessary thing. So much so that it's your duty to pray concerning it. Notice again, again, all of this revolves around that he would make plain that he would have the utterance to open his mouth boldly. To do what? To speak or to preach as he would in the context the gospel. If all of that is worthy to be prayed over, and that Paul says it here and he says it in other places, then, brethren, there ought to be a clue there that preaching must be pretty important. That this is the main thing that he speaks about here in this passage. Again, as the crowning efforts upon the idea of the whole armor of God, that God, as it were, would put His stamp of approval upon the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. So pray then. Thirdly, pray for Him for the general hardness of the hearts of the hearers. That takes place, doesn't it? I told you this morning that I come to church sometimes cold and hard, uh, that sort of thing. Also to others. So pray. Pray that God will break the hearts of those who hear the gospel and hear the Word of God. Pray that the Word of God, fourthly, will have free course. Not just praying for the pastor, but pray for the Word of God itself. 2 Thessalonians 3. And, uh, oh, I'm in Timothy. That's why that looks so funny. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Here's why. That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. So pray that the word of God would have free course. Pray for it here. Pray for it when I have to counsel others. Pray for it when we're at the rescue mission. Pray for it whenever the word of God goes forth. In the... And the tapes, any of those kind of things that are where the preaching of the God's word in some form is going forth, we need to be in prayer regarding it. Number five, and I said this one this morning, so I'll just, just mention the head of it. Prayer for me is in reality prayer for you. 
And then the last one, or the sixth, number six, excuse me, there's a lot more. Just as it is my duty to ask for prayer, it's your duty also to know my circumstances. Be concerned for my welfare. Again, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Even though they have to admonish you, you're still commanded to know them. And the word there doesn't mean, oh, you know his name. Ah, That's his name. No, it means you have this intimate relationship. And we talked about this Saturday as well. Why? Because that will be how I get to know you as well so that I can preach better unto you. And again, I am thankful that there is a lot of that going on here. That you do labor to know me. Know my family, my needs, and my necessities. And something happens to me. And to esteem, he says, that's the next part of that verse, and esteem them very highly in love for, again, that work, their work's sake. It's a lot of work being a pastor. Let me ask you, in that passage I just read there, how does your attitude line up against it? If you were to take that verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, and you apply it to your life, how would you come up? I don't want to know. don't want to see hands. Just... Asking that for for conscience sake. So you may say, well, I just pray for you in a general way. Well, in Paul's request here for prayer, was it in general or was it specific? It wasn't general, was it? Pray for me in this light that I speak bold. That was a specific, narrowed in, honed in prayer request, wasn't it? <coughs> that he had to tell him. So do it like that. Seventhly, for those who do these things, let me express my thanksgiving to the Lord for you and to you. Uh, I even had this morning someone say, yes, they pray for me. I appreciate that. I really honestly do, and I thank God for you all. I told you, as I mentioned, I have you in the back of my Bible where I pray for you. I was sitting up here doing that very thing this evening while everyone was getting seated. So this is... uh, It goes both ways. I appreciate your prayers for me. And even in these things that we've looked at tonight and this morning. Well, what do we say to the lost here this evening? Hmm. You know, I'd hate to go away preaching all this about the gospel and and not tell you that you need to hear the gospel. And that you need to believe the gospel and repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ. Or there is no salvation. There will be no salvation to those who believe not the truth. They'll believe the lie and they'll be damned. But God justifies all those who believe the truth. So Christ is set forth. And not just here tonight, but He's set forth more plainly in other times. I realize this. This is more for Christians. But again... I want to be able to open my mouth boldly to speak the gospel as I ought. Even here tonight. If you're lost in sinning sins and you know it, my friend, they repent and believe that gospel that saves sinners. Why go on? Why harden your heart against this truth when I'm preaching that it is a stumbling block to the Jew and it is foolishness to the, to the wise and to the wisdom of this world? What do you think? What are you thinking? How can you go on believing the mess you believe or disbelieving the glorious truth of the gospel? Of course, I understand on this side of salvation, it all seemed easy. 
but it is a work of grace. God must work. And there we shall leave it.